I got this crazy pain in my head. It felt like somebody was stabbing me. I was 27. I didn't really think anything of it. And then the next thing I remember, I think I fell to the floor uh, and I lost mobility on my right side because uh, I had a full hemorrhagic stroke and two areas of bleeding in my brain. I was paralyzed on my right side for a period of time. I remember being on the on the floor, losing mobility, trying to pick up my phone and saying, like, call my emergency contact. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest from one of the business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Amanda Dornberg. Amanda is a technology and marketing executive with a passion for disrupting traditional industries via new and emerging tech. Currently, the president of the Canadian Out of Home Marketing and Measurement Bureau, we'll call it just Comb for short, I think it's a lot easier. Uh, it's a mouthful. And she's responsible for driving innovative change using new and emerging tech across the out-of-home industry, which we'll get into. Out-of-home is a interesting term, and we're going to have Amanda break that down for folks who don't know what it is. And I'll hit the continue music button here because it only lasts a minute or two. Um, but she has a ton of wealth in knowledge, experience, and she has an incredible story. So let's get to it. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right, I'm going to lower my lower my music now and, and get into it. Well, awesome, thank you. And uh, we have our our, <laughs> our friends our friends up north in the uh, in in Toronto, my uh, home away from home. Uh, Twenty plus years ago, I was telling Amanda before <clears throat> we went on the air. I went to school up in Buffalo and had many, many, many good times up there. But we'll save that for another podcast when we go. It's a this different is topic. Your, yeah, we're not talking about college, Adam. That is just uh, no one needs to hear about that. So the show is about you. Amanda. So before we get into the current Amanda, there was a version of Amanda growing up and correct me if I'm wrong, keep me straight on this, that kind of went down the road of a professional model. What, what happened? We scattered them all. Was it one of those like cliche modeling stories? Tell us about that. It's a little bit cliche. Yeah. yeah let's get, let's get into it. I'm curious. Um, yeah, it's a little cliche. I was scouted in a mall. <laughs> so nailed that one. Um, I was, I grew up in a small town, like very, very small town uh, called Prince Edward County, which apparently now is wine country, mm. but I haven't been back in about like 25 plus years. Well, the grapes have grown in 25 years, Amanda. They would I just start so. on the vine. I think they did. I think they did. But, you know, back then it was nothing but farm fields of, of wheat and hay and blueberries and not a lot of grapes at the time. Um, <clears throat> so I, I had... What I like to say, a less than favorable upbringing per, per se. So my familial upbringing had, um, you know, a, addicted parents uh, and, you know, abusive home situations. So I did everything I could to possibly get out as quickly as possible. And I happened to be, I was 14 at the time. I was uh, in Toronto <clears throat> at a mall and um, a model scout came up to me. And I thought it was kind of a, a bit of a joke, to be honest. A little creepy, maybe. Yeah, I was like, what is this? Like, I'm, I'm a child. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it, when I did my research, it was it was one of the largest um, international modeling agencies. It was elite uh, models. Uh, so they scouted me. And then around 16, I, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16, two days after my 16th birthday, in fact. 
but at, at that age, I, I had worked through their sort of model development program for the, the past, the prior two years. And um, they had put me into the, the women's division and, and started sort of sending me out on, on gigs. And uh, I got signed with um, a number of international modeling agencies. And I, I spent uh, from 16 until I was almost 32 as a professional model. Uh, it was it was a whirlwind experience. I had agencies as well at the time. So I, I opened um, a model placement agency and an artist representation agency. That's interesting. <laughs> when, when, when did that, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here and we'll spend a couple of yeah. minutes, but I want to talk first about when did that light bulb go off where you started to see like the business side of it as an opportunity for you to not just model, but, you know, make some other money off of it by opening an agency? So I think I was probably, <clears throat> it would have been in my early 20s. So I graduated high school when I was 16. I was, I was very much a nerd. So graduated high school when I was 16, moved out, put myself through college. I did computer programming and systems analysis while I was modeling full time. And I actually worked at a call center full time as well doing tech support. Um, and <clears throat> I went to university. I did a bachelor's degree in marketing, media and communications when I was 18 to 21-ish. And it was during that time that I really fell into the, the business side of things. And, and it, it definitely transformed my modeling because I would be more inquisitive. I'd, I'd be mm. like, why did you book me? I don't look like the rest of the girls here. I'm, I'm like the oddball out. Why are you right. understanding the, the business side of it? And then exactly. Logic. It was trying mm. to, you know, <clears throat> I made friends with all of the production crew because I, I wanted to understand, you know, what they were doing and why they were doing this. And uh, so I think it would have been, you know, during my university years, let's say 18 to 21, uh, that <clears throat> made me think about, hey, you know, I could turn this into an actual business. Uh, so I started initially doing model placement because that was the most familiar to mm -hmm. me. You know, I, I was a model, so I, I could see what these brands technically wanted. What they were looking for. Yeah. Um, so I started with that. <clears throat> and then I kind of expanded and went and opened a second company in um, artist representation, which was like photographers, videographers, the whole directors, industry. POPs, yeah. And, and, and what was one of those, you know, you know, first really hard lessons learned the hard way, as they like to say. In so which nice. capacity, which one, the agency side or the modeling? Yeah, the, well, let's do agency side first. And we're going to unpack the modeling side too. The agency side, <clears> uh, <throat> learning a very difficult lesson that people really wanted my contacts. Uh, I was a bit naive and, you know, young first one of one of my first businesses. So it, it was a hard lesson to learn because it was somebody who was a very, whom I thought was a very dear friend. And um, unfortunately, turned out not to be. <laughs> I just wanted to steal my contacts at all of the, you know, the Condé Nast, the Vogue, etc. of <clears throat> the world. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was that was a hard lesson learned. And, and how much has that affected your ability to, to trust people professionally and personally? I actually think it's helped me a lot. Um, it, it's helped me to be able to understand what motivates individuals in a, in a very quick fashion. So typically when I meet someone and my friends and my business partners will say this, they're like, oh, she's she's like a human calculator. She'll, she'll just read you. She'll right, know you could size people up pretty quickly and understand their exactly. intentions and motivations. <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, so I think that, you know, it, it gives you a level of street smarts where you understand, you know, mm. what's motivating individuals and, and how that um, will transpire in business. 
So, so talk about street smarts. How did that translate into you know the what people say about the dark side of, of modeling? You were a young girl, lots of young girls in the industry. I'm sure you had to deal with your fair share of you know harassment, sexual harassment, and navigating through that. Tell, tell us a little bit about that time. Had as a 16 year old, you know, out in the world by yourself. I mean, that's you know hard to, to wrap our my head around. But like, what, what was that time like? I mean, I'm not putting a date on it, but you know, it's still in, in a recent recent past. <laughs> yes but certainly before the me too a bit of a lifetime ago i'm i'm open about my age i'm 40 now so i'm very proud to be um a young welcome, welcome to the 40 club it's well, not that bad 40s I turned 40 in april so i'm, oh. I'm here um it, it there was a lot you know there was back then <clears throat> i was very thin and i was maybe like 115 pounds soaking wet and i'm five nine uh, so I was, I was your typical like slender model in the nineties and the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, and I, I had hips, let's say, which now everybody wants hips. Um, <laughs> but hips are not back, now back in style. Who would have hips figured? are back in style. But back then they were not in style. And, and, you know, my agencies would, would often request that I diet or I do this and that and lose weight. And then, you know, on the flip side, the sexual harassment component, I, I have stories that could probably, I, I won't repeat them, but I have stories that would make women cringe. Um, <clears throat> men throwing credit cards down and trying to force you into sexual acts. And it, it was truly appalling, uh, but certainly gave me thick skin, uh, if you will, and um, gave me the capacity to understand <clears throat> that you you don't first and foremost you never have to con- you know concede to that or, or go down that path but uh, it's it's okay to be strong enough to say you know no and and it, that is not going to get you to where you want to be in fact it should be inspiring to be able to do that without having to go down that path yeah I mean from, from what I hear I mean we certainly made strides as far as that in the industry but it's still prevalent there's still you know, so elements of that and, and today with this modern culture of Let's let's make a little left turn here, right? Like, how 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 does it, like you, I think now of like, you know, I think it's a platform like OnlyFans, right? And I think of it two sides: one from an exploitation perspective, and then I also think from a monetization perspective that it's really enabling so many women and men and and everything in between and everybody to really have a platform to make money. And who gives a shit, right? The whole kind of image is changing. The whole perception is changing. What what are your thoughts on on? I think on it's- the- <clears throat> You know, for, for individuals who are, are leveraging OnlyFans, it's empowering. At the end of the day, it's their body. They can share it. They can do whatever they want with it. You know what I mean? And no one gets to dictate how they're, they're portrayed or, you know, mm-hmm. what the perception is of them. I think it's great. Kudos to them. I don't have Kudos. the... Uh, I don't have the capacity to do it, but kudos to them. <laughs> I mean, I, I if I had like a joke around my friends, I'm like... I mean, what if it's just my feet and people aren't seeing any of that, you right? Like, love that. Like, <laughs> I know. And my wife always jokes. She's like, "You have a very big, big toe." I was like, "Hmm, is that can I monetize that big toe?" She's like, "She's like, listen. She's like, if no one sees your face, I don't give a shit what you do. If you're making money to pay the bills, I'm like, right. all right. Well, that's that's a conversation for another another podcast. Oh, <laughs> we could call only only toes, but we're gonna get back on track here. And let's. I want to get back to something uh, certainly more serious. And you've certainly talked about it a million times. Part of your story um, is when you had AVM, which is basically a brain aneurysm. For those who don't know, um, what happened there? Was it was it genetic? Was it stress related? Got the um, scars. To be honest, <clears throat> AVM, which is uh, for those who don't know, arteriovenous malformation. It's a tangle of veins and vessels in the brain um, that. Uh, doctors actually, it's very rare. It happens in less than 0.01 of the general population. 
Uh, <clears throat> so quite rare. And um, doctors don't actually know how it occurs, but they do know it happens um, as a fetus. So you're, mm. you're born with it. It's not hereditary. <clears throat> but typically, if you have a rupture, which is essentially a hemorrhagic stroke and an aneurysm, um, you're either very young, <clears throat> like a you know less than 10 years old, or you're elderly. Uh, so for me, it happened when I was 27, and uh, I was on set at a photo shoot uh, modeling. I had two gigs that day, and we had just wrapped the first one. Uh, fortunately, we were in Toronto here um, at uh, a studio very prevalent in, in the East End. And, you know, fashion studios are, are hot, sweaty. There's not a lot of open air. There's no windows. Hot lights, yeah. <laughs> it's like hot lights. There's just, it, there's a lot going on. It's a lot of people around. And so um, I, I got this crazy pain in my head. It felt like somebody was stabbing me. I was 27. I didn't really think anything of it. And um, it, it just was the most intense pain I have ever felt. So I went out into the hallway um, where there was an open window. It was June, June 17th of 2009. I have that date tattooed on my arm as well as the date that I actually had my brain surgery, which was September 24th. Um, fortunately for me, my EMS or, or my uh, makeup artist was a former EMS worker. Um, and so she followed me out into the hallway and started asking me questions. You know, what type of pain is it? Throbbing, pulsing, stabbing. I was like, I don't know. It's just the most fucking intense pain I've ever felt. Like, forgive my swearing. It was so intense. And then the next thing I remember was, I think I fell to the floor mm. uh, and I lost mobility on my right side because uh, I had a full hemorrhagic stroke and two areas of bleeding in my brain. Uh, so technically two aneurysms. And um, <clears throat> I, I was paralyzed on my right side for a period of time uh, <clears throat> because of the damage to my brain. Anyways, so I, I remember being on the on the floor, losing mobility, trying to pick up my phone and saying, like, call my emergency contact. And then the next thing I recall, I woke up in ICU and I had tubes everywhere. I had a tube in my throat and like all this beeping around. They had done a quick procedure to what's called cauterize the the area of bleed, so just to stop it bleeding. But because there was multiple areas of, of bleeding, I um, I had too much brain damage um, to have a full surgery. And at the time, they were still trying to figure out what the cause was. Because I was so young and I was healthy, I was fit, I didn't drink, I didn't you know do any drugs, I was like an anomaly. And um, <clears throat> so they run all these tests and then they, you know, a week of being in ICU later, they tell me that um, I, I need to have a full craniotomy, which is a full brain surgery. So you can see <clears throat> I've got a horseshoe shaped um, scar. They, on they opened you up. They opened me up. Yeah. It was see a, what's under the hood. Exactly. So <laughs> that wasn't able to happen until uh, the end of September of that year because I had too much damage. So I was blind for a period of time. I was going to um, ask about that, how it affected your vision and speech. Yes, vision and speech were, were heavily uh, impacted. So vision, I was about 90% blind um, due to the, the bruising, bleeding, and, and damage. And speech, my brain was cognizant in the sense that I could actually, like, you know, formulate a sentence, but I found a, a disconnect between how I was able to communicate with this, the rate at which my brain would think I was communicating. We were, <laughs> so I, we, 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 I mean, you had to be scared. I mean, what, what, I mean were you scared of... Well, let me let me ask you this. You left the house at 16. 
who who was there for you? Hopefully you had a good good fa- good friends and and other maybe family around you to support I was, you. Yes, I, I was dating um, a lovely man at the time, and uh, his family took care of me. They they were there with me the whole time. Talk to us about the recovery. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was intense. Um, so after surgery. Between June, so June 17th was when I had the, the the stroke and the aneurysm. And then September 24th was when I had my actual brain surgery. Surgery was 12 and a half hours long. Um, had to fill out all of the horrible paperwork that at 27 if, yeah, things geez. you would want to, to even consider. Um, <clears throat> so between June and, and September, I, I uh, because of the swelling and the bruising, um, had sort of subsided enough to allow for surgery. I did regain, you know, cognitive mobility, if you will. It was, it, I wouldn't say limited. I, I had full capacity, but it was laborious, let's say. Um, and I, I had around, you know, 60% vision going into surgery. And they had, they had anticipated that that would alleviate um, post-op. So <clears throat> there was a lot of, of rehab in the sense of, you know, just getting up and walking every day. And, and I saw being in the neuro ward, <clears throat> I, I really saw some sad stories and, and yes. things that humble you, let's say. <laughs> how, long, um, how long was it? How long? Took me about two yeah. years. I was off work for two years. I did some modeling stuff. I closed my agencies during that time. So I closed both my agencies and um, I did some modeling work here and there in between uh, during that two year time frame, just when I felt physically, I was able to, to stand for 12 hours, if you will, Jeez. or eight hours. Um, but it was, it was two years, two years. During that time, what was that thought process about, you know, once you're able to focus on the healing and, and you felt confident that you were going down the right path of what's next career wise, like maybe modeling is not going to be forever. No one ever thinks modeling is going to be forever. Um, any, but where how'd you wrap your head around that? What was next? So it was interesting. I <clears throat> when I decided it was time to re-enter the workforce, let's say, I wanted something more stable because in my fashion life, I was traveling constantly. You know, I'd been to some really beautiful places around the world, but you're always on the road, right? And so I wanted something that was a little more stable and and um, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> given my background, which was marketing and and fashion and, and media, it was somewhat of a natural transition into the advertising space, which is where I am currently advertising in media. Um, and so I took a job at an out-of-home company. Uh, at the time, it was called Titan Outdoor. They, they no longer exist. They, um, <laughs> they used to be everywhere. I remember the bottom of the billboard seeing Titan. You know. They used to be everywhere. <laughs> so out-of-home, it's, it's it's so funny because, I mean, I'm, I was telling you before, and I'm, I'm, I'm an ad guy, but What's what's the definition of out of home? Explain out of home advertising to anyone out there who's who's not in the industry. O O H. O O H. O O H. O O. O O. It's um. I like to call it offline advertising. So when you leave your house, hence the term out of home, you see billboards, you see you know Times Square, Young Dundas Square, you see all sorts of big beautiful assets that um, are on the side of a highway. You see a transit shelter. You mm-hmm. see bus wrap. Um, all of that is classified as out of home. You go to a restaurant and you see an advertisement, you know, in the washroom above the or, sink. That, or on the menu, right? On, on the menu. menu. Yeah. I love the it's diner true. menus, the local ads. Exactly. 
That's all classified as alcohol. Uh, So it takes many different formats from outdoor to indoor, which we call place-based. But yeah, I took a a job in out of home as a marketing director and I quickly um, took over the tech because I'm a nerd. Uh, so I ran all of their their IT infrastructure um, for a while, and um, then Titan decided they were going to sell uh, the Canadian assets off. Uh, so they had recently sold their their UK assets. They they were a multinational uh, company at the time. So when I joined, they had just recently uh, sold off their their UK assets. And um, about maybe seven eight months into to my role with them here in the Canadian space, they decided to sell the Canadian assets off. Hey everybody, I wanna talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20 plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Let's get into the tech side of billboards because I yeah, it's it's so funny. We were driving upstate um, this past weekend uh, on, on and it was Route 17 crossing from the New York State Thruway uh, off the New York State Thruway. And there was this one stretch that I swear to God had like 40 billboards in like a quarter mile. And I'm like, I said to my wife, like, what the hell is that? I'm like, that is one property owner is trying to maximize the amount of <laughs> amount of billboards there. But they were like old school billboards, right? They were for yeah. all the local businesses and everything that are up there. And then I started talking to her about billboard technology. And, I was, and we're talking about the innovation in Times Square, which is pretty much the epicenter of innovation and interactive billboards. I think in the first one you think of Times Square, they had the, the, the camel smoking ad, that smoke coming out of the camel mm-hmm. and then, you know, the soup, the, the cup of noodle soup coming out there. So creative. And now we fast forward to today's digital age where these billboards are so intricate and they involve so much technology, whether it be geofacing, wow. interactive, any type of AR, AI, um, uh, any type of Web3 integration, so many different ways to do it. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, that that innovation side of tech and how that really spoke to your passion of, of being a nerd. Absolutely. So <clears throat> I quickly learned that, you know, the the, the billboard industry was relatively traditional and there was huge opportunity and upside opportunity to innovate and to, to drive technology through, um, through this medium. <clears throat> and it, it happens both uh, with what we would call, call classic or static inventory. So your traditional billboard, like this, the static stuff you see, mm-hmm. but also in the digital side of things. Um, <clears throat> so first and foremost, what comb, what my company does is ingest, um, over eight and a half million, we call it road segments on an hourly basis right across the country, um, which allows us to understand <clears throat> consumer movements and like volume of movements, flow. So, you know, what percentage of, of traffic turns left versus goes mm-hmm. right or straight at an intersection that that we ingest on an hourly basis. <clears throat> and we take this information, we then observe, you know, these analytics to understand consumer movements to what we classify as a home origin, uh, which would be a device persistently static over a study period. Usually that study period is around 12 months. Um, <clears throat> and we understand, okay, this device lives in this static location. We take that, that, um, um, 
longitude and latitude and reverse geocode that into either a zip code or a postal code in Canada. And then we work with <clears throat> companies like StatsCan or, you know, the, the governments that are doing all of the, the census surveys. And that allows us to be able to target or, or provide to, to clients and advertisers the ability to, to understand the consumer audience that's actually passing by a specific out-of-home asset. Um, and then on the creative side, with respect to digital out of home, there's so much innovation. You know, we've got new technology like anamorphic creative, which is that 3D where it feels like you're coming out of. It's pretty cool stuff. Oh my gosh! It's right, so- and like even even like the bus stops in in New York here are incredible, and it's been a a, a canvas for experimentation. Yeah, and I think it's innovating a lot a lot on the creative side too, because it's allowing creative directors to come up with crazy ideas because it's attention grabbing. Right. It and is. you may have somebody's attention if it's a billboard for what? What's this at? 2.2 seconds. I'm making it up. I'm pretty close to that. Or a bus stop where you may be sitting there for, you know, 20, 30 minutes and absorbing it and engaging with it. And and there's there was one with the uh, I don't know if you saw it in New York City. It was a year or two ago. Where it looked like I had a million dollars locked in it. Oh, yeah. I did see that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's it's a playground of innovation. But it's weird because in the industry, OH has always been like the like the, the stepchild, right? Like it's not as sexy and everything, but I think it is. I think it's an incredible opportunity to be like physically present. Canvas. It's literally an open canvas. It is a giant canvas. Literally and creatively, you can do whatever you want. There's like, you, you can do 3D projection mapping on a building. You can create experiences that are like awe moments, like aha moments where you're, you're not just amplifying a brand with this experience, but you're also like, encouraging engagement and, and the social sharing side of things. It's really like, I love out of home from a creative perspective. There's so many opportunities There's- from a data perspective, you know, I fell in love with it. Actually, funny story. Go for it. My first experience with out of home was as a fashion model. So I did this campaign um, for Jean machine. Do, do y'all remember that? No. That, it, it was like a, it was a, um, can't say that I do. You're lying to my audience. <laughs> it was a um, a denim retailer, and they were really big in North America. So I, I landed their campaign, and uh, they put me on billboards all over. But one of the billboards happened to be uh, there was a massive one in Times Square, and then there was one here in in Toronto at Young Dundas Square, which is the Times Square of Canada. And <clears throat> it actually had so it was my back, and I was wearing like a jacket and these like shorts. But they they did a 3D extension on the billboard itself to look like a skirt. Hmm. And then when the wind blew, the skirt blew Uh. up and it caught the attention of everybody, you know, on the street because they're like, oh, you know, the billboard model's skirt blew up. So I remember going down and taking photos on like my SLR camera at the time or like my flip phone. Regular camera. Uh, Old school cameras. Yeah. (laughs) But that was the first time I noticed out of home. I was like, damn, because everybody wants to be on a billboard. Like, what, if, if what was artist, that like? The, like the first time you, the first time you saw yourself on a billboard, like, let's, let's I was like blown what away, the? completely oh. blown away. I was like, whoa, larger than life. Is this real? You know, you feel like you've made it when you get to see yourself on a billboard. Right. So you can help um, me get this episode with your show art on a billboard in Canada, so I could finally see my exactly. face, your face on a billboard with my. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. We'll do it. And the hat, the hat. I mean, like you see, you see how it, the, you feel it. Right? Yeah, like there, even like, there's something visceral about it. And yeah. that stuck with me from that point on. And it's funny that, 
you know, I landed into this career in out of home and, and also in media. So fun fact, I'm not just the CEO of, of, or president of of Comb. I'm also the CEO of Billboard magazine in Canada. Uh, We just launched October 5th here in the music magazine. Um, Which is... We're going to get to that. We're going to, we're going to get to that, but I'm curious about your, your, your dipping your toes into the, into the crypto and and blockchain world with Centris. What, what got you into that? Is it, is it your tech side that you were, and, and what are your thoughts on, on, on is, is web three. First of all, I I mean, go on my soapbox here. I think it's a, doesn't need to be branded. It's not doing any good for Mm -hmm. the industry. I mean, this is technology. Talk to us a little bit about your entry into that world. Yeah. So I, um, I, I, Ended up in that space. Okay, maybe need to backtrack a little bit. When in my home space, I built two startups. I sold one um, with a bunch of partners, not just me solely. Uh, we sold one to <laughs> we sold one to Bell Media, and we sold another one to Outfront Media. And when uh, Outfront acquired our company uh, at the time, it was called Dynamic Outdoor. Um, I stayed with Outfront for about 18 months. I was their youngest executive. I think it was 32 or three at the time. It's impressive. Thank you. Um, and so after my 18 months with, with Outfront, it's a amazing company, great people, uh, love my time there. I just, I wanted something different. So I quit and I decided to, uh, partner with a few friends and and start a, a company called Centris, which was a um, we would we called it an uh, executive consultancy company in Web three. So we built our own products, which was really great. We sold a couple um, to Deloitte, and we worked with some some really cool partners. Uh, but we also gave low level investment to Web three companies that were looking to sort of dabble into the space and we would insert ourselves in as executive consultants for like the first two, three months just to help them get off, off and running, um, give them the business structure, help them understand, you know, what the needs are, where the gaps in the market are and, and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting because at the time this was back in 2018, I think 2017, 2018. It's early. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. We built a fully decentralized tokenization marketplace and I branded it, to this crazy, we call way it way too early, <laughs> way too early. So it's basically like the whole NFT craze that mm-hmm. is of today. Um, or but we were just year. way too early <laughs> or was. yeah. <laughs> um, so it, I, I love the space, you know, the technology in it of itself is, is literally just that, you know, blockchain people, people might be intimidated by it. They think blockchain and all they immediately go to is crypto. Right. Crypto not- is not blockchain. Blockchain is not crypto. Crypto is not yeah. NFTs. Like, get over it literally blockchain is a technology it's a database fundamentally that's it it's a database it's a decentralized database it's lots of different computer touch points that are sharing literally. and storing information it is to just make it- a database people yes. it's a way to share info and you can do a it's almost like the internet right if you think about it like the early days yeah. of the internet it was different store things stored in different areas it's the same concept but it's just like revamped let's say it's it's the new internet if you will um, and we used to get this question all the time when we were going to like pitches, we're trying to like sell, you know, companies or like even big companies. Cause we did, we had like a, a, a B to C and a B to B vertical, um, within Centris where we were like talking to, you know, the Deloitte's of the world. And we're like, no, you can do a permission chain. <clears throat> and they're like, like what? what? Huh? <laughs> we're like, yeah, you can keep it in your own little bubble. It's not the whole world doesn't have access to your shit. It's just like in your 
Like there are security features to access the information. It's not free internet. No. Um, so it's it's funny to me to see like how um, how blockchain is perceived. Let's say uh, it's a it's an incredible technology. One of the things that uh, we talk about in with Arts Help, which is a, a not for profit that uh, my business partner started and I'm on the board of, um, <clears throat> we talk about the environmental impacts specifically, you know, the various different consensus algorithms, proof of work versus proof of mm-hmm. stake and the impact on, on what that looks like. Uh, from, from an energy consumption perspective exactly. and mining and yada, yeah. yada. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we do a lot of education on that. Um, it's a great space. I, I do think that there's going, we're going to see a lot of resurgence, even with NFTs. Um, I just think it's an early market, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take 10 years to adopt so what do you think the killer app is going to be for mass adoption? Killer app for mass adoption. <clears throat> That's a good question. I, I think, I think health, I think, I think healthcare, I think real I think real estate transactions. Mm-hmm. Supply chain is like the biggest, like the, the lowest mm-hmm. hanging. Everybody was right. trying to get into the supply chain, logistics, you know, manufacturing. We did something with um, a, a bullet manufacturer. I'm not going to say which one, but they manufactured bullets for a, a country's, police services and um they wanted to because there was a lot of gun violence in that particular country so they wanted to understand you know the, the mm. flow of where the where the products are ending up the yeah. end user um but again i think people are scared of, of blockchain because it is fully transparent so you know governmental and 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 um political services mm. it, it would yep. be great if they took uh <laughs> if they adopted, you know, leveraging blockchain, but um, I, I think pre- it'll be a while. I, I do appreciate your perspective. Um, there's a theme from, like, from doing our research, a theme around disruption. Whenever you take a new role, you're coming in, you're disrupting it. And disruption in some regards is a buzzword unless you're actually doing it. What's your kind of, this is going to sound so counterintuitive, but what's your, what's your thought process around coming in and disrupting a technology or, or a brand or a process or something that's been quote unquote set in stone for many years. Why are we sleeping if it's set in stone for so many years? <laughs> for me, like I, I like a challenge and I, I like inherently as a human, I just can't sit still. So if I, if I take a role and I'm with a, an organization the company knows that I can't sit still. I cannot be. That's not why they brought you in. They no. know what they're getting into. They know why they brought you on board. And I will be a bit of a shit disturber. I will be that person that, you know, talks back and says like, no, I don't think that this is right. Or why aren't we doing this? Why have we, you know, set, <clears throat> spent the last 15 years doing the exact same thing? Like, why are we not trying to change? <clears throat> and oftentimes, you know, there's resistance that comes with that. But at well, the end of the day, to me, disruption is culture. So in order to disrupt or to change, you have to have the right team around you. It's not about one person's vision. It's about ensuring that, you know, I might have a a great, what I think is a great idea, but I've got the right people around me to tell me, Amanda, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) Don't do that. Or that's a great idea. Let's run with it. So you talk about this pushback. How would would you describe the, the difference of, you know, when you've seen male colleagues in the industry pushing back versus you, you know, females pushing back. Do you want my honest answer? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we want. 
Yeah, let's let's talk okay, about it. Let's be real. I let's be I, real here. I'm not I'm not shitting around. We're disrupting we'll, the podcast. Come we'll on. be real. We'll be like full on real. I'm a very young CEO. I'm as I said, 40 years old. I took over Comb when I was 37. I was the youngest and the the youngest CEO globally of an association that does. <laughs> That's I have the buttons. Awesome. I'm going to use it. <laughs> I was the youngest CEO uh, globally that does what we do in the, in the industry. And when I took over, I had a lot of male, you know, not colleagues, not within my organization, but within the industry who were of very senior positions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether old they, school, as we like to call it. Yeah. We'll, old we'll school boys club kind of. Yeah. I had a lot of them, you know, look at me and, and, Literally, sweetheart, let me tell you something. I'm like, sweetheart, let me sweetheart tell you. with the cigar in the mouth. Let me tell you, come sit on my lap. Like, uh. Once again, I have like the thickest skin ever, so like it doesn't it doesn't wholly bother me. But I will put you in your place. Just watch me open my mouth, and I will school you based on what I'm about to do for the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that the pushback between you know the the dynamics of gender. Let's say, um, I think for the Honestly, like truly, for the most part, everyone has been very supportive of what I've done. There's, you know, rare occasions where I have these situations where people are, you know, condescending and whatnot. And it's fine because to me, I'm like, OK, you you can hate all you want, whether you're male, female or, or whatever other uh, gender you identify with. <clears throat> I, I truly like just just watch what I do. And to me, like I, I never let that bother me. I never let it, I never take it personal. And that maybe is a piece of advice that I can share to your listeners that people are going to say and, and judge and do whatever they want. Like, haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. You can't, you literally cannot change somebody's opinion. So at the end of the day, just change their opinion or show them by the work that you do and the results that you garner. That's powerful. It. Yeah. Powerful. So most recently, you mentioned before you went from billboards to billboard. Talk to us about that transition in your career. Uh, well, I, st- I do both. So I, I'm still in billboards in the out-of-home space. And um, we just recently launched uh, Billboard Magazine here in the Canadian space. So my business partner and I, uh, who he's, I call him Fammy, uh, literally, like we've worked together in various entities. I like it, Fammy, family. Mm-hmm. Family, um, for the past decade plus, Um and so he, he has a company called Arts Help, which is um, the largest global uh, digital arts publication focused mm. on pop marketing. Mm. And so I sit on the board of directors uh, for Arts Help. And, um, you know, I do I'm, I'm technically the CEO of media uh, for them as well. <clears throat> but um, we have a big partnership with the United Nations. And with that company, uh, we grew from just a social platform. We were literally it started in, I think, 2018 um, as an Instagram account that was focused really on sustainability and environmental impact and climate activism. And, you know, that grew within a year to over 20 million followers wow. just organically. <laughs> and so we were like, OK, there's a business here. And anyways, well, what, do you, we, what do you attribute that growth success to? That's a huge jump. Community. Something go, the community. Yeah. We, and and, and how did you foster that? Uh, content. So we were a media publication. So it was it was pure content. Um, the content that we the type of content that we were putting out was global. And um, 
Uh, we, during the pandemic, we did some activations. We won a Guinness Book of World Records. We sent art to space. Like we did some really unique stuff to garner some good PR, let's say. And the, the following has, you know, just continued to grow. But because of that, we actually had, um, we had Penske Media Corp approach us, which is the parent company of Billboard and Variety and South by Southwest, Rolling Stone, like a number of, of um, titles. And uh, they wanted to buy us mm. as a publication. We were like, actually, we joked. We we're like, actually, we, we kind of want to buy you. <laughs> All right. Continue. <laughs> so we have we have grand visions of, of building uh, into a large media house and um we had conversations where we were discussing other titles outside of Billboard magazine, um, and we are still continuing several of those conversations. But um, it, Billboard just it fit with with us. It fit from a cultural perspective. It fit from a gap in the marketplace in the Canadian space. You know, a lot of media publications are closing down. Uh, there's new legislation from a privacy perspective that's limiting content from the U.S. or from other markets into Canada. Yeah, Meta's got like the hold on that Meta Google, you know, and so we saw a gap in the marketplace and we jumped at it and we said, we'll take this. Is there, is there, is there a physical publication or is it all digital? It's all digital right now. We will do special edition prints here and there. But what, um, What's your thought on that? Do people, is there a comeback for like that, that textile, you know, feeling, feeling it, holding in your hand? I. I mean, I used to enjoy reading like Rolling Stone and, and Sports Illustrated and other magazines before the internet. I, I don't like I don't like magazines. I don't like reading I don't like reading on the internet. It's just I have to. I like holding books. I I cannot read and uh, I cannot read a, 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 a you know the downloadable books the Kindles. I can't. Oh, I was about I like, to say what is that the Kindle thing? <laughs> I like to I like to turn pages. I feel like I need to be in the book. I can't. I swipe all day long. I can't. I just can't read like that. Like, you and I are it, similar. I love. A tactile magazine. Tactile. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, Thank you. for no, all good. For our, our vocabulary, our, not so good. <laughs> for our media kit, we actually printed a physical mm. magazine. Uh, we leave disrupting it backwards, right? Like, oh, what's old is new again. I love that shit. So every every client meeting that we go to, we leave these these media kits in. And they're like, oh my God, these are so sexy. Like, this is so cool. We actually have a physical magazine. Like I'm a like, slick one pager, like a nice. It's it's honestly like a magazine. It's probably like eight, 10 pages oh, or wow. like put together a very robust media kit. Um, and yes, of course, we have a digital copy, but we thought it was cool to have something like tangible. Like, let me. It's, mem- it's memorable and, and it's yeah. physical and they cannot just delete it. They could, they could have it. Let me, let me, let me, let me. Bring it back here. I was saying you earlier, the show rooted in, in, in career journeys and career advice. As someone that has hired, I assume, many people, has interviewed lots of people, when someone gets to you in the interview process, I assume they've already checked the boxes from a qualification standpoint. They have the skills for that job that they're interviewing for. Now they're coming to you and you're going to dig in and you're going to really try to assess character and values and and why they should be part of the organization and if they're a good fit. What, what are some of those you know, secret, not so secret, Amanda Dornberg uh, interview tactics and questions. So I'm not a traditional interviewer. I like to just have a conversation because I want to see who the person is. By the time they've gotten to me, they've already gone through the questions. My right. team has already, you know, interviewed them. them on, they've pre-screened, they've interviewed on like, are you capable of doing this job? Yes or no. So I don't, I don't need to ask those questions. What I want to know is what what scares them, what motivates them, mm. what inspires them. 
And these are just conversational components. And why I want to know what scares people is because underneath fear comes growth. So if they're scared, for example, I'm terrified of public speaking. To me, I can see as a leader, okay, well, this is an area of of growth opportunity for you. And we need to understand why you're scared of public speaking. Um, If you are inspired by your parents, then you probably have had a great familial upbringing and you have, you know, core values Mm -hmm. that you will bring into uh, a company. And you may have some traditional values, but you may also have some non-traditional values. So they're, they're somewhat strategic, like psychological questions, because it's not just about the answer. It's about understanding what is driving this individual, what's motivating them, what, what makes them tick, um, both personally and professionally, because their personal interests are ultimately going to bleed into their professional lives and how they do their, their work. Like if they are a sports enthusiast, probably a team player. <laughs> if they're not a sports enthusiast, maybe not a team player. <laughs> and that one, I mean, that, that one, that one could go either way. So True. <laughs> you know, if someone's looking at your resume, right, just on paper, I mean, there's been a lot of movement, a lot until you kind of unpack it and really understand. I mean, I wouldn't call you a job jumper by any means, but what advice would you give folks who might be in, in a career or a job that they, that they don't like? And having that, how do you, how do you get to that point of saying, yeah, I'm done with this shit. I'm out of here. I'm going to try something because that's not easy, right? And obviously you have financial factors and everything, but what, what, what kind of guidance framework would you give for that thought process? So, I mean, anybody who looks at my LinkedIn will see that I, I typically stay with an organization three to four years max because I get bored very quickly. Um, you know, full transparency, everybody I speak to, I'll say the same thing. I get bored very, very quickly. <laughs> I need to be challenged. So, Advice for somebody who's not happy within their role is to find something that inspires them. Um, Money isn't everything. And frankly, the less you focus on the fiscal component, the more the money will come to you organically and naturally because you're actually doing something you're passionate about and you're putting your time and effort into something that you absolutely love. The money comes naturally after that. And I know that Mm -hmm. that sounds silly and people will be like, oh, my God, you know. That that's not the case. But the more you chase money, the the more you're probably going to hate your life in the work you're doing because you're just chasing a, a dollar. You're not actually chasing what you're passionate about. If you find something that you're passionate about and that you you love to do every day, you wake up excited. You don't wake up being like, "Shit, I freaking hate my day today." Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not that's that's not the way to live. So, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, before I bring it home here. What's next on the horizon? Give us some alpha. What are you, what are you working on that's exciting you these days? Um, totally. So with Comb, we are launching a new uh, product. So it's, it's, a, it's a data science and tech platform cool. that will allow the media industry to understand um, various different insights and, and uh, consumer psychographics, uh, demographic and lifestyle components, as well as, you know, just volume information uh, down to on the digital side, digital at a phone spot or ad play level. So, you know, an eight second spot will be able to tell you exactly how many impressions you've garnered um, and what that audience looks like. And on the billboard side, we are already talking expansions um, internationally. I love it. Good stuff here. So, so let's, let's bring it home here. And and my, my final two questions I ask every guest and it's, it's been a crazy compilation of over 300 episodes of answers. Um, Amanda, what is, what is the single greatest piece of advice you have ever received that you take action on every day? Always be curious. Curiosity is one of my most 
mm-hmm. favorite attributes of somebody? Always be curious. Uh, every day, learn something new. Just always be curious. Never be stagnant. Never be stagnant. And Amanda, last, last but not least, um, you look back on your life and you think about, I mean, you have the scars to show it, the, the, low, the low points, the lowest points when you didn't know if you were going to survive. You didn't know if you're going to know if you're going to survive. That's how mm-hmm. fucked up you were, right? Literally. And you look back on that time and you're lying in the hospital bed and you're going through years of recovery and you had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity to drive you forward to the place that you are today. Successful, building companies, building people, um, building products. And you sit here with gratitude and respect for what you've built and what you're building in the future. Amanda Dornberg, what is your compass? What is your beacon? What is your North Star in life? Humility. Kindness and grace. Um, I respect everyone. It doesn't matter what walk of life you came from. And each individual is unique. So I, I, I truly try to pride myself on, on humility, kindness, and grace. Always be gracious to anyone. Um, kindness is self-explanatory. Self-explanatory. But humility, you know, the gratitude, and, and perhaps this is because of my life and my upbringing and, and, and whatnot and the, the surgery. But um, I'm just grateful every single day to be here. And I think if we start to take for granted what we have, which is the ability to, to breathe this beautiful air, to walk around every day, because so many people don't have that luxury. They, they can't walk or they, you know, they don't have the luxury to be outside. Um, I, I just, <clears throat> yes, always be humble and grateful. I love it. And I am grateful for you taking the time this morning to join us on the podcast. Uh, everyone, you could check out Amanda. You can follow her on social media channels at Amanda Dorenberg all together. Where else could folks find you, connect and learn more? Um, I write for Forbes, Fast Company, Rolling Stone and Entrepreneur Magazines as well under my first and last name again at Amanda Dornberg. Uh, Instagram, same thing. Uh, thread, Twitter. It's it's all just under all my them. Last name. <laughs> that's that's how you do it. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Hang with me one moment as uh, as we sign off. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you your time. Sure. Your, your honesty. Yeah, of course. It's been a great chat. Um, and everyone out there, if this episode resonated with you, please leave a review rating. It goes a long way. If you have any questions, shoot me an email. Adam at nhptalentgroup.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Find out more at thepodcast.com. Remember, be good to yourself. Be better to others and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.